0: Hello, you are listening to Inside the Box, the podcast
1: where current research and museum objects serve as starting points for conversations about our
0: past, present and future. Decolonizing while staying is the trouble. It hurts decolonizing and we have to handle with this.
1: Beautifully said.
2: I love that. (laughs) Staying (laughs) with the trouble. My name is Michael Barrett and I work as a curator for the African Collections at the National Museums of World Culture. All over the globe, museums of world culture are struggling with the fact that many of their objects were collected in the colonial period. Decolonization is often the label under which this reckoning is carried out. But what does decolonization mean in practice? How are museums and those that care about their collections working to counter the legacies and effects of colonialism on people, culture, environment, and minds? Can objects in museums be used to heal social relationships that have been broken? To discuss these issues, we have two guests. Raymond Perotti is a hip-hop artist, filmmaker, and cultural administrator based in Sweden. Your multifaceted work in music and film challenges the mental boundaries between histories, identities, and cultures of Sweden, the Caribbean, and the wider world. Welcome to Inside the Box. Thank you. That's a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Nanette Snoop is an anthropologist, curator and director of Rautenstrauch Jules Museum in Cologne. Uh, You have pioneered efforts to open up world culture museums to new and often difficult conversations and to different kinds of actors. You've been a central player in the current shift in the way we imagine the future museum. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. As always, we will start the conversation by examining an artifact from the collections of the National Museums of World Culture. Let's see what is inside the box this time. So, I'm just opening the lid here to this nice silvery box. Can you both see what's yeah. happening? I'll just do a, like a unwrap this a bit and give like a visual presentation of what we're seeing. This is a drum shaped like a cylinder. It's light brown in colour. It's about half a metre high and has a diameter of 23 centimetres, made of wood. On the top there's some kind of animal skin and you can also see some thick pieces of rope that, are, that is tied around the skin. Also you can see that the, skin, or the surface is a bit damaged. It looks like insects have eaten into the wood I don't feel any particular smell or anything like that there is a fragment of a label that has been torn off but according to the museum catalogue we know that this object came to Sweden in 1892 uh, and it was originally from the Kotika river in Suriname and we also know that the donor is a man called Axel Klinkovström who was a nobleman and also a Swedish zool- zoologist and an author he wrote tons of books actually so what do you f- feel when you see this object
1: it's a beautiful object it reminds me of many of the drums that are used still today when we have cultural meetings and when we have dances and when there are the specific Surinamese uh, rhythmic sessions when we play the it can be anything from the modern music to the traditional music then these type of drums are still used so definitely
2: yeah. What about you, Nodet?
0: Yeah, I'm always very moved when I see this uh, kind of objects because they have been silenced, and the way how you present them as a museum curator, I'm a museum director. I would, I would do the same. But you speak the the way how you present the object is It has become a museum object. You speak about a number. You speak about uh, how much diameter and. And here you see the here you hear the whole violence of this story. And at the same time, yes, this this is a very important uh, drum. And I would like to know his his story. Hmm. What could he tell us actually? That is what I would like to know.
2: So, for those that don't know, where where is Suriname, and uh, how would you characterize the country?
1: Suriname is. Uh, small country, the smallest on the continent, placed above Brazil, between Guyana and French Guyana. That is formerly known as Dutch Guyana, but also previous to that, known as British Guyana. So, yeah, it has a history of colonization.
2: Mm-hmm. And you have a personal relationship too, Suriname, so Yeah, might...
1: I am from Suriname. I will call myself first-generation immigrant to Sweden. And a lot of people that I meet here, they will base their view of Suriname upon seeing me. But Suriname is a very multicultural country. So you have a great big group of minorities that coexist in the same space. So even though you might have somebody from another ethnic group, they will still today use These type of drums in their music, and uh, as you say, the indigenous people of the land—they will definitely use these type of drums in their music today. So it's it's a multi-ethnic country, I would say, definitely in the true sense of the word.
2: Yeah. Nanette, do you have a relationship to Suriname?
0: Yes, of course, because I'm Dutch, uh, and I lived until my 18 years in the Netherlands, and we even—I remember even a song in mm. Suriname <laughs> <laughs> we were singing when I was a, a young girl. <laughs> but for me perhaps Suriname also for me the first country when I was a young girl that I became conscious of the story history of slavery. And it was also during Bauterse, the 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 war of independence the independence of Suriname in 1975 so that was something which was really uh, important in my life and that's why, perhaps it's because of Suriname that I'm now a, a museum director. <laughs>
1: Interesting, yeah.
2: Yeah, very much so. But what would you say the countries of Sweden and the Netherlands today, How, what do they know about Suriname generally? Is is the knowledge high or low?
0: Well, I don't live in the Netherlands anymore. So, but I don't know why I was so interested in Suriname. It, I cannot really explain it. But I'm sure that Suriname is much better known in the Netherlands than in Sweden, also because you have a large communities from from Suriname. And so that that is very different. But what you say about also this idea of multi ethnic, multicultural, multi religious, here I think that Dutch people that in the Netherlands they do not really know this mixture of so much communities, religions. And I think this is something we, the the Dutch, or in the Netherlands, we underestimate.
1: Yeah, I would definitely fully agree uh, with your points. Because if we, if you look at Dutch music today... All of the slang languages and even the Eurovision contest that was previous Eurovision was a, basically a Surinamese contestant in uh, Dutch that represented Holland or the Netherlands. And all the young music today is basically the slang languages and so it's based on Surinamese Creole. But the vast difference to being from Suriname being in Sweden where there's, I looked it up on uh, the statistic bureau and there's basically around 57 people in Sweden from that, <laughs> that are from Suriname compared to, I think it's above half a million in Holland now. So, so it's a big difference. I would say there's a big way. I mean, you can't be. From the Netherlands, without knowing of Suriname, but you might not have a full understanding of, as you say, the multi-religiousness and the multi-ethnicity and the multiculturalness. But from Sweden, people are oblivious to Suriname. They don't. They don't know, and that's very interesting to me.
2: But Sweden also has a history in the Caribbean, right? Yeah. With the island of, of Saint Bartholomew. Yeah. Um, would you say that it's the same? with that history?
1: I would say people basically don't even know of that history. What they might know in reference to that is Pippi Longstocking's father that he had, he was king on a slave island, but that as far as it goes. St. Bartholomew, they basically don't know much more about it than that. That would be the reference. Oh, is that the island of Pippi's father where he was a king? But more than that, no. And if you expand of the Swedish involvement in the Transatlantic slave trade also, there's absolutely no no knowledge about it.
2: So we might come back to that later on. But I want to come back to the drum a bit uh, to talk about that. How would you think, Raymond, how how would this drum have been used in the 1890s? And and you mentioned it before a bit, but what role do similar drums play today?
1: Like Suriname has a extremely rich culture when it comes to music. Like there's no music is such a deep part on of everyday life. It, it doesn't matter if it's a birth of a child, if it's the death of a, a loved one, if it's a, a, any party, there will be, if it's a slightly bigger party, there will definitely be a, a big band coming through or a marching band coming through. Because we have the, the caseco music, we have the kawina music, we have, and all of that is basically, it's drum rhythmic music. Uh, so, drums and of uh, and even spiritual rituals you have drums being played and people will dance into trance and people will summon ancestors and whatnot. and it's, it's the drums and we have like some of our drums are named like the Apenti drum and some of the rhythmics are named that's the Cromanti rhythm and so and that's all based on the heritage and some words are used but the invo- like the understanding of the words may not be understood by everybody for instance, the the chromanti rhythm, it was a forbidden rhythm to play, but people just a few years back, like 10 or 15 years back, people rediscovered what chromanti really was, that it was a region in Ghana. But before that, it was just like, yeah, chromanti is something that you chanted or something that people got involved in to basically... But not that it's a really specific place, uh, and you will have that. You will find that word being used throughout the Caribbean, basically, and mostly the English-speaking Caribbeans. And you will find that in Jamaica, and you will find that. So you can basically you can Google "Kromanti Rhythm," and you will find some different tracks from, from reggae music and from whatnot. So it's very interesting.
2: Letta, uh, I would like to ask you. You were involved in an exhibition in 2021 called "Resist" in Cologne, I suppose. Resist the Art of Resistance, yes. And you had a similar drum to this one on display. What did the drum signify in that exhibition?
0: Well, this exhibition was about anti-colonial resistance in the global South and also about the resistance in times of slavery. And uh, the goal of this exhibition was, for example, regarding to slavery, to say that it's not because of white abolitionists that slavery has been abolished, but that enslaved people themselves have freed themselves. And that from the very first day of slavery there have been resistance already on the ships to America. And I think that is very, very important also when you speak about uh, empowerment. So here we had a drum also from the, from the same time, also from the 80, 80s, from Suriname. We showed and we spoke about resistance and that this kind of drums were typical instruments of resistance. Sometimes music wasn't allowed on plantations, sometimes it was allowed. People were slave masters. were were very well. were completely conscious about the fact that there was resistance and so on. But sometimes on Sunday, enslaved people were allowed to play those drums. And with those drums, they could communicate and giving and give really uh, secret messages. But so precise and that is very interesting uh, so precise in order to say on that on that day at that time we meet each other so you have very important moments of resistance huge huge uh, movements of resistance on plantations thanks to those drums and i like it very much those white slave masters were really too silly to understand that those instruments were really a system of communication and in order to organize uh, movements of resistance. And, And so in this context, we showed this drum. Secondly, also, it is interesting that those drums, you can find them also in the Congo, for example. So you see also how enslaved people from the African continent... Took took their knowledge, and in this horrible moment of time of slavery, they found they had this courage and this resilience to build new instruments and to play them again, perhaps in a different way. But it is also a kind of survival and resilience, what I found very interesting in this kind of uh, instruments.
2: Wonderful. So I just wanted to say a few more words about the collection, how it came to Sweden. It was during a so-called expedition that Klinkov Ström, who was a zoologist, was sent out. He said that there was a great lack of ethnography from that region of the world. So he asked the Swedish Geographical Society for money. He was given some money, and he went and you know started to collect zoology specimens, but also ethnographic specimens, uh, objects, uh, everyday objects, and he basically went around quite a large part of Suriname and bought stuff from different. He also wrote about this afterwards. He made, I mean, he was there only like five months or so, but afterwards in his publications, he makes very confident statements about how people are, their daily life, their culture. Beautiful. And often it's very racist, openly racist ideas about that people are lazy, that they're disorganized, that they're mimicking European customs, etc. And also he talks about superstitions and and things like that. So I just wanted to, to talk a bit about that. But related to that, and related to to texts like Klinkov's drums, one way in which museums bring these kind of colonial and racist mindsets into the present is that we use, I talked about old labels before, old catalogs, etc. And we keep them and sometimes we refer to them. And the catalog entry for this particular drum says it was used by, and I quote now, Bush Negroes. So I wanted to talk about this word a bit. Why is this word so offensive? And how do you both think that museums should handle these types of demeaning labels?
1: I think for the current state of today, it is important for people to understand what brought us here. How come that situation for people of the African diaspora is what it is in many of the places where you can find us? Uh, So it's important to understand, okay, how raw it was in this time and how it affects our current state because it's it's one thing if you hide it, because there's a whole movement now, basically trying to whitewash, as you will, the whole slave trade. Everything from yeah, but Europeans were also slave, by enslaved by our Arabs, and this and that went on, and yeah, Africans enslaved each other, and so now nah, it wasn't that it wasn't that horrible. So you have that whole movement trying to minimize and trying to marginalize the experience of slavery that went on for x hundred amounts of years. Uh, so I think it's very important to bring forth all that we know today. And and inform both coming generation, but also current generations that haven't been taught or fully understood the horrific atrocities that went on during slavery. And today we might react to words, but I think it's important to fully display. Like, this is how people looked upon and everything from the the voyage, like everything from when people were first captivated, because it's even me. I had to re-educate myself as in, okay, people were brought over, but not really fully understanding how they were brought over, that people actually spent time in those ship hulls for six months before they even started crossing the Atlantics. That gives you a whole or the understanding of the brutality when you understand that, okay, they went on shipping trips, basically shopping trips along the shores, and it took them six months before they filled, the, filled up the hulls before they started crossing. And it gives you another. So, as you say, the resistance started already when captivated. And so the language, I mean, people came from a huge. A huge region It wasn't like One language barrier But people had to Basically find new ways To communicate So I would say The pidginization And the creolization Of the language Started already there So when we Luckily have some words That we still can use today That are used in the Caribbean for instance uh, Creole languages Then we see That okay wait a minute That is a word from Ghana Wait a minute That is a word from Benin That is a So we see the connection So I would say some of us like to claim Ghana and some of us like to claim uh, Nigeria and so, but it's terribly hard for any one of us just to claim one specific region. So I think it's, but yeah, I'm going a little bit off track now, but I think it's very important to just remind people of this is how we looked on other human beings and this is how we treated other human beings. And we know better today, so we should act better today, but some remnants of that are, is still affected today. So we should really, yeah, I think we should let people know, expose people to it. Definitely.
0: It's a very complicated, difficult issue. But because I'm completely right with you, you must avoid this kind of whitewashing. But how to speak, how to... ...tell this deeply violent story which is still going on. People are still traumatized by this story of hundreds and hundreds of years. So how to speak about this violence, this structural violence... and ...but how also to avoid, to re-traumatize people who are concerned this story and here I'm every time like an acrobat I'm going uh, left to the right and from the right to the left, I, I never know sometimes to who I would like to whom I address this story to a white audience or to an audience of people who I could re-traumatize. But at the same time, the white audience has to know this story. So that was also in the exhibition Resist the Art of Resistance. At the same time, I spoke about this violence, this colonial violence during 500 years. But at the same time, I gave messages of empowerment and and that was a kind of so we could a little bit balance the story so and that is also how to deal with photography anthropological photography or what you say how to deal with historical titles at the same time people have to know to understand how incredibly racist it is but at the same time you must not repeat again the same words so i don't have the recipe no. and i'm <laughs> every time i'm playing with this and, and 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 dealing with it and but i think this is for i mean i speak from a perspective as a museum director for me it is essential when i make this kind of exhibitions that i work directly with people who are directly involved by this story
1: if i may add just as you say it's it's all about the context cuz it's people often speak In generalizing terms, when it comes to the African diaspora, when it comes to the slave trade, and most will refer to the American slave trade, as in the North American slave trade, not knowing that most slaves went to Brazil or the South American continent. So, and it's very contextual because what is... Valid for the North American slave trade is not valid for the Caribbean. And what is for the Caribbean, it may not be valid for the Brazilian because it's all been handled in so many different ways and the different groups are in different places when it comes to the journey of handling the trauma. I would say I could make a strong claim, for instance, that the Americans that have been left under the slaveholders and never really left colonization, if you will, because they were still under their masters and they went through Jim Crow and they kept on, went on going through horrific uh, structures whilst the Caribbeans, when the colonization ended, people were basically freed for a second time. Uh So, and that's another story when it comes to the Brazilians. So it's really definitely contextually different. So you have to look at the Caribbeans, for instance, okay, the colonization has ended in most places you still have the french and you still have the spanish and you still have some other na- nations that are still under colony but for brazil for instance it's been blended and the terminology has affected the population in a totally different way as in you will have people speaking of skin color in different ways so you will have uh Racism within racism has to say, and but the Americans, if you look at the Americans, it is totally different. But people often clump it all together and say, oh, that's the effects of the uh, transatlantic slave trade when it's it, we in totally different places and positions when it comes to that. So one thing that will work for one group will definitely not work for another group. So it's contextualized, definitely.
0: I think that's an important point also to, to complexify the history of slavery. And I think that is also an, an, another violence in our european white narrative is also to anonymize slavery. And um, we speak about slavery, so also we do, do not see the difference between the history of slavery in Suriname and in North America, but also enslaved people, they don't have names. And that is what I try in the museum, also to tell stories about individuals. And there are portraits of uh, enslaved people with a name. Sometimes it it is very little information we have, but that is also to try to give back humanity and a name. And that comes back to this musical instrument. It is this this violence of museums and I am part of it part of this producing again and again this violence but it is also that those instruments they are also anonymous and they don't have a name, we don't know to whom it has belonged and I think that is very complicated how we could deal with it, how we could give voices back and this idea of individuality
1: that's a beautiful point. And I would like to once again add, because you touched on on it briefly, uh, the way that they handle it, for instance, in Brussels with the African Museum, I think that's the way to go forward as in you involve the group that it pertains to, the group that it that is about. You involve them and that will be a sign of respect, as in they can definitely be in the diaspora, but still have a say. So what happens to the artifacts that are related to them? And that's the respectful way to go about it, I think.
2: So you're talking about issues like shared stewardship around collections, for instance, and the sharing of knowledge and exactly. also, of course, authority yeah. and control over yeah, some of those cause, collections.
1: Yeah, because I think... Uh If we are to move forward as a collective, as in both sides of the history, because I used to say, or I like to say we share history, but we don't share perspectives because the winner tells the story. So if we are to move forward, then both perspective needs to be involved in the moving forward. It can't just be, okay. we did this and now we're going to show how we did it and we're going to show it our way because then basically you're continuing the trauma. So you need to involve the people that it pertains to in moving forward if it's supposed to happen in the right
0: way. I'm completely agreed, but I would go even further because this idea of involvement that is also a kind of buzzword of ethnographic museums. We involve and we are so nice we give some space to some communities. So I think here you must be very radical. What is that involvement? What is shared stewardship and this kind of thing? So for me in my museum, I do not Involve. I really say, hey, this museum is yours. Those spaces are yours, and make it's it. Beautiful. And and still, it is a relationship of of inequality because of I I you as the director <laughs> yeah. I have the power. I'm a wide director. Yeah. And I give space yeah. and I have the money. Mm. But so there, we we can never huh, even giving space is is. Still quite particularly, yeah. quite particular. But I think we really have to radicalize. And when we speak about involvement, really, say, what does that, that mean, really yeah. mean, involvement? As, for example, what does it mean, decolonizing? Mm-hmm. Yeah? It hurts. Yeah. Or it hurts particular people. Yeah, uh? definitely. So it's about losing power. Uh? And, and yeah. And here museums have to be ready for that. Yeah.
2: So Raymond, your day job yes. is as head of unit for youth leisure activities in the municipality of Huddingen, yes. right? Yes. In south of Sweden.
1: Yeah, correct. Oh, south of Stockholm. <laughs> the sorry, of Stockholm. <laughs> yes,
2: <correct. laughs> so, how does your interest in global history influence your work working with young people mostly? And Secondly, what do you think that the young people that you're working with in Huddinge think about museums and about cultural heritage, such as this drum? Um,
1: they know nothing of it. It's something they try to avoid uh, to start answering backwards to your question. Uh, but from my position, what I can do is to have a full understanding of minority groups. And I work mostly with kids from minority backgrounds because I work in the suburbs in Stockholm. And... What they lack is understanding of their own history uh, as well as the Swedish history and and how it pertains to each other. Like the context of how did your forefathers or your ancestors get here uh, and also uh, what is your own historical background. So I often try to empower, push, strengthen and in all the ways that I can when it comes to because it's it's. uh, as we were touching on before, uh, it's self-identification. You need to be able to make that journey, but we need to be able to present it to you so you can, at your own time, when you're able to pick and choose from what you want to dive into. Uh, and that m- has to be there for the kids because otherwise it's so easy for them to be lost in so many ways, not knowing or not understanding. So uh, we try to do our best from our uh, horizon.
2: So, Danette, uh, uh, could you give some concrete examples from your work and how you involve diaspora communities, for instance, and how you give them voice, as you said, not just involve them, but also actually giving control or giving power and then, of course, losing some power in the same time.
0: Yeah, I consider the museum, there are four walls and a roof. And this is for... Cologne, for the people from Cologne, but particularly my priority is for the diaspora uh, living in Cologne who until recently did not feel very well in this museum. Uh, um, and so I try, this museum can never be a safe space, but it can be a space where people can deal with their colonial traumata and, and dealing with all that stuff. So we have very different formats, but um, so it is giving space. So in, in exhibitions, we have, for example, uh, galleries or uh, rooms. We call the It's Yours, It's Yours rooms, where you have It's Yours curators who create their own exhibition inside an exhibition. Other formats are exhibitions entirely curated and managed by a community. Or we now we have also a new format initiated by a, a Nigerian photographer who uh, organizes every month and this format calls Black and White Spaces where he invites the African diaspora living in Cologne and they have meetings, they have parties, they have talk, they have public talks and this kind. So there is a lot of Form it. that is in my program, and then of course what is very important that is my stuff, yes. the structure, yes. because you can be very diverse, let's say, in your program and getting a more diverse audience, but as long as your stuff and the structure remains white then no we change. have a huge problem so this is since i'm in since 2019 i'm in cologne and i really every time when i can have new people i really try that particular and there are a lot of very good experts living in Ger- germany with diasporic uh, roots and so this is really and so in 4 years the structure and the team become uh, it, it becomes more diverse, but I see also that it is also sometimes problematic for. The white stuff, I must say. I'm also white, but um, for me, I like it. But uh, a lot of people have, because it is losing your privileges. So we have a lot of problems dealing with white fragility in, in my stuff, in my structure, in my museum, and also in the city. So we, we are very criticized. But I think this is the idea of staying with the trouble. Uh, and this is it. So decolonizing while... Staying with the trouble. It hurts decolonizing, and we have to. Handle with this
1: beautifully
2: said. Yeah, I
0: love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> staying I, with the uh, trouble.
2: Yeah, because I, ahead I
1: ahead. was involved in a project, uh, EU project, ten years ago when we that was basically brokering migrants' uh, cultural participation, as in to facilitate how to have minority groups take more spaces when it comes to theaters and museums and so. And it all landed in the same thing: recruit, recruit the groups that you want to involve, or recruits uh, the groups that you want to come to your exhibitions or visit your theaters or whatnot, because any. Else would be just superficial, so that's basically it. If I'm to mass plan, mass plan what you just <laughs> said, yeah.
2: So, this question might be a bit controversial, or to you, it, it might be easy to answer. Uh, but there are some that say that we should just close museums of ethnography, for instance, or museums that care for colonial collections, that they're not relevant anymore, so just close them. But what do you think about that sentiment? I think I can guess, but.
1: Yeah, uh, if I'm to say... It depends on how they're used. And for me, I see a strong possibility to use them to both strengthen the diaspora, uh, living in the place where these spaces are, but also the connections back to where the artifacts and and things are taken from. So I see uh, it depends on how the things are used. And there's a strong possibility to use them for positive things. And as I said, if we are to go forward together, then these are keys that we can use today.
0: Actually, I'm completely agreed with this, but it's a long way, because for that, to obtain this result, we have to change the internal structures of museums, and that is very, very complicated, even when you are a director, when you are supposed to have power. But I think that is, so it could be very relevant, those museums. But also I think what is very important, of course we haven't spoken about restitution policy, and so, so restitution is part, must be part of our daily job. But even when objects, artifacts are restituted, we have to stay with the trouble uh, the The shadows of those restituted artifacts will stay in the museum, so we have to be very careful when we restitute that we don 't think okay, now everything is fine yeah. no the story and and that is the I think the mission of this museum to honor this story and to strengthen the diaspora. In here in Stockholm, or uh, in my position for Cologne, and I really hope also that after me there will be someone from the diaspora directing the museum in Cologne. That is really my dream.
2: We've talked around it quite a lot, and we've mentioned decolonization. Um, but I mean, could you give us a, an easy answer to or definition of, of what it is? What is de- decolonizing the museum?
1: I would say educate, uh, as in educate of the history so that people fully understand, so that we can bring it up to date and move forward from here. Because you can't just move forward from here without doing the decolonization, because ha- it has to be done. And that is in informing, educating, displaying um, to have people know this was the history. And this is what we're not going to do going forward so that the mindset can be changed. Because otherwise, we're just going to repeat some of the things that we already have done that has failed us when it comes to coexisting. And so, I, I think that that will be uh, to speak semi broadly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Decolonizing is really uh, unlearning our uh, vision of history of the world. And that's why I really like uh, the Haitian uh, anthropologist and historian Jean-Michel Trouillot uh, silencing the past. And this is really this idea how parts of story have been silenced. Mm -hmm. So we have to make decolonizing is really to multiply, to produce new narratives and that we have a polyphonic narrative. And that is decolonizing but it is completely a program of unlearning and accepting multiple stories and particular those stories which have been silenced that is for me decolonizing
1: minority perspective Hmm. yeah i will say that
2: You've talked about it somehow, uh, to some extent, uh, but wh- what are some of the reactions you have met in your decolonial work? Uh, I mean, what kind of reactions do you meet?
1: People will question instance, why it's important, and people will question uh why dig in the past, and as I say, often minimize, as in, ah, but it wasn't that bad, or ah, but Sweden well, were not worse. The Dutch were worse than the Swedish, and the the British were worse, and the French were worse, and now nah, Sweden just had this little island and nothing more. But then I show them the context, and then they will understand. And if I show from my point of view, as in that I've been digging the most, like the presence of Sweden in little, little Suriname, then people will say, okay, if we were in that small little country, in that vast numbers, maybe we did a little bit more than just have a little small island with a couple of thousand people, so yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> uh, I think it is it 's hard work, and uh, it is really a bumpy road, and sometimes you think, okay, now we are yes, there is a kind of progress, people are accepting. Uh, that there are other stories or uh, the system of coloniality and then suddenly it's, it's the monsters <laughs> let's say uh, come, uh, come back so it is an, an, an ongoing uh, battle and it is going for sometimes I'm very very impatient very often I'm very very angry but people are also very angry on me um, so it's a battle it is really a battle, but this road we have to take. That's the future.
2: But what do you think is behind those kinds of backlash uh, that we can we can mention? It. We can call it backlash. What is behind it? What kind of sentiments? I think it's comfort,
1: because it's comfortable to know. I mean, if you look at most of our national anthems, we'll sing of glorious pasts. Uh, But you don't show what made these past glorious and you don't show how were other people affected by your so-called glorious past. And that is what we need to bring to light as, okay, your glorious. I used to say your heroes cannot be my um, cannot be my tormentors. So if we're talking about everything from what statues are we displaying and your heroes cannot be the people who tormented my, my forefathers, it won't work. We can't go forward from that because that's what I, to me, that's a part of decolonization. And to me, that's a part of how we how we can use things today and to move forward because not nah, it can't happen. But uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long road. <laughs> it's uh, it's not something it's not, not something done in, in five minutes. And I'm, I'm thinking it needs to be taught in schools in a broader perspective, as in bring up the minority perspective, because otherwise we're still doing the same thing. I mean, there are places where Columbus are, is still taught as a discoverer. And so we are a long, long way from where we need to be, really.
0: Yeah, actually, actually, it, it hurts. Huh? Because this world vision, our heroes, so what you say, our heroes, yes, they are not that that heroic eh? and uh, they doesn't they don't deserve to be called heroes and that is so it is dealing it is dealing with this discomfort and uh, but it is also and i think so it that so your world vision for a lot of white people it has completely changed or they feel aggressed and then but and that is also a, a very important point they lose, people lose privileges. Uh, so it, that make also angry. Uh, and uh, so when we speak about it, this is really the phenomenon of white fragility, what's happening. And um, yeah, so here we have to build other tools in order to, to deal with this. But it is really this discomfort, this, this uh, what's happening now. Yeah. And we are completely what you say, all those uh, colonial statues, oh, everywhere in the world, in every street, street names. We are, the, the, the whole, the world is full of this. And suddenly we are, com- we become conscious, okay, it's, we have to change this all. And so we are living really in an in-betweenness. In um, in this in this in betweenness, the 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 past world that is over, but this new world we are not yet there. And in this in betweenness you have a lot of monsters who are coming up. uh, And yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) A bumpy road.
1: Yeah. I I had I had this conversation last week, I think, as in okay, people reacting to you can't say anything today, you can't make these jokes today, you can't you're and feeling silenced from it. And having to explain, nah, no, you can't do all of this as long as you don't traumatize people, as long as you don't hurt people. And what has changed is basically now you're hearing the other voices. Before you had the privilege of just being one voice. If you, if you go to what Chijamanda said of uh, being the narrative of just one single story, but now you're getting to hear the other voices that might make you question the main narrative that has been forever, basically. So that, I mean, that is if you are, If you're open-minded, you will take in the other perspectives and narratives, but if you're closed-minded, then you will stay to what has always been and feel comfortable in that.
2: We're soon going to wrap up, but um, uh, Nanette, you're going to be part this afternoon in a conversation that we're having in the museum with uh, invited guests around decolonization, but also the question of return. And you mentioned restitution before, but... Are there other forms of return that you can envision apart from uh, giving back objects themselves? Uh, Are there other forms of return that you can think about?
1: Oh, definitely. (laughs) Let's hear it. No, I'm saying we're talking reparations. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a topic now, and we're looking at um, for the Netherlands have opened up for some cultural institutional reparations. Uh, that I I don't remember really what they call it, but they they're gonna put up a fund for people to apply for money to do cultural things. But we, we're talking reparations. That's that topic needs to be on the table. Uh, it's high time, definitely. So financial, yeah, financial reparations, uh, compensation, compensation for, yeah, for
2: slavery definitely. and other types of yeah definitely. violence, definitely.
1: Definitely.
0: Yeah, I think that restitution is is more than that—a restitution of of objects, artifacts, financial reparations. But it is also about restitution of stories and uh, of voices. And so I think in th- this, is, this is more in a metaphorical way, but I think this is very, very important. Uh, and that's why sometimes I'm very active in, in the restitution, in this restitution policy, but I think it is also very important to deal with all those stories and also try to make it accessible Thank or to you. produce, to help producing new narratives. And that is, so restitution is much, much more than financial reparation or restitution, material restitution.
2: Thank you. It yeah. is
0: also a symbolical restitution. Yes. And we have to take that into account seriously. Any
2: final words? No, I fully agreed. I'm just happy seeing his smile. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank both of you for the work that you're doing, and thanks for coming here to talk to us uh, in Inside the Box. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, thank you thank very you, much. Thank, thank, you.
1: thank you. You have been listening to Inside the Box. The podcast is produced by the Museum of World Culture and the Center for Critical Heritage Studies at the University of Gothenburg in collaboration with Folkuniversitetet. For more information about today's episode and pictures of the featured object please visit the podcast page on ACAST. Thank you for listening.